All right, Colossians chapter number 3 tonight, verse number 1, Paul says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now, last week, we spent the entirety of the time going through chapter number 2. And in chapter 2, for the majority of it, Paul deals with a truth about the cult that was seeking to infiltrate the church at Colossae. We need to be reminded daily, man, that Satan desires to pervert and disrupt and destroy the work of God. I wish I could tell you, I joke with preacher friends sometimes, and we say, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be for everything. It don't matter what's going on. If somebody claps, I'm going to clap with them. You know, if, if somebody shouts, I'm going to shout with them. Uh, if, if I don't know if we'll mow our yards uh, in glory, but however they mow it, I'm going to be for it. Because as a man of God, so many times you feel like you're just against so much. And uh, it's easy. Christians grow weary in that. And I think sometimes they just get tired of being contrarian, being against everything. And that leads to compromise. But we need to be reminded daily that, listen, there's a lot of things to rejoice in, rejoice for. There's a lot of things that the Lord has blessed us with. God's given us a church. God's given us believers. God's given us a Bible. There's a lot of things that we can find comfort and security and, uh, and a sense of safety in. But we never need to lose sight of the fact that Satan is roaming. He desires to destroy the work of God in the church, in the world, in our life. And so Paul spends a good amount of time dissecting this Gnostic cult and dealing with those five areas of, of assault that they had uh, brought to the church at Colossae. He deals with, uh, of course, legalism. He deals with mysticism. He deals with uh, intellectualism. He deals with aestheticism. Uh, he deals with all these things that are sort of avenues, ceremonialism, that they are trying to use to destroy this little church. But then in chapter number 3, he turns and gives us some truth about the Christian. We might say this, some truth about the Christian life. Uh, it should be no surprise to us that chapter 3 begins by talking about Christ. For Christ is the very beginning. He is the origin of the Christian life. All things, and he says this later on, that Christ uh, is, is all and is in all. And that sort of sums up the Christian life, man. It's all about Jesus Christ. He gives us some practical truths about Christ in chapter number 1 to safeguard us against the cult. And then in chapter number 3, he gives us some important truths about the Christian life uh, to help us against this very same cult. And if I could just sum it up in this way, I would say this, that what Paul's pointing to is that what we got in true Christianity is far better than anything the world could provide. I think this truth is lost on a great many Christians, myself included most of the time. When we, I think we lose sight of all of the blessings that we have in Christ and what a rich, valuable, precious, priceless thing it is that we get to know God in the person of Christ. I think mean, it sort of becomes something we're just familiar with. You know, that's Christianity. And we've heard sermons preached on a thousand times. But think about what this cult was trying to get them to trade for the paltry things, the rudiments of the world that they had. They were trying to get him to trade Christ in all that he is. So uh, Paul spends some time in chapter 3 dealing with some truths about the Christian life, the Christian experience. He begins in these first four verses by relating to us a statement of what is expected in the Christian life. 
What is the Christian life? How can we sum it up? Well, he gives us three realities that I think sum up, give us an overall view of what it means to be a Christian. First, in verse number one, he presents to us the reality of Christ's resurrection. The reality of Christ's resurrection. The resurrection is the keystone doctrine of all biblical theology. It is the keystone truth of the Christian experience. If Christ be not risen, then our faith is in vain. And so grabbing hold of this idea of the resurrection is paramount to us being able to live the life that God has intended for us. I say this, that it's a great tragedy that we don't put more emphasis on the resurrection. One of the things that was always described about the apostles in the book of Acts was that they talked about and preached the resurrection. At Mars Hill, the Greeks accused uh, Paul of being a babbler. They said he was a setter forth of strange gods. Why? Because he preached the resurrection. So this was the forefront of the apostles' message, is that Christ literally died, literally rose from the grave, that he rose in victory over death, Satan, and hell, and that he holds the power over death. He makes this statement in verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ. And it's easy to read that sometimes, and and in that, take that to be some sort of of seed of doubt. But it's sort of like what he says in chapter 1, verse 23, when he says, If ye be grounded in the faith. Uh, If ye be grounded in the faith and settled, move not away from the truth that's been given to you. He's not saying, I hope this doesn't happen, but rather it is sort of an implicit statement. He's saying, if this were so, and I trust that it is not. Paul uses this same language in that great resurrection chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he talks about if Christ uh, be not raised from the dead. You know, if the dead rise not. What he's saying is this, if, but we know that's not the case. And he's seeking to show what would be the implications were that not to be the reality. But he's doing that not to dismiss the reality, but to confirm it. Uh, Sort of like when you think of something being placed in bold relief, if you want something to stand out, you put it against the color of a vastly, uh, a background of a vastly different color, because you want to show forth the truth of it. He says, if ye then be risen with Christ, and we know that that is so, we know that that is true. Here we have another one of these uh, sort of prepositional truths. He talked about the fact that they were at Colossae, but they were in Christ. Well, here we have another one. He says they are with Christ. As believers, we are presently now with Christ, positionally speaking. The resurrection is set forth as a fact here. And in fact, all three of these realities are set forth as facts. Satan had given some facts of his own in chapter number 2, and Paul had dissected those. But now he seeks to give some real statements of fact for the believer to be able to answer those arguments when they're given to him. These statements are mystical, but they are not mythical meaning that they are not tangible truths, but they are real truths, nonetheless. And the first is of the resurrection. Three things I think worth noting. The the resurrection is, number one, is a fact of sacred history. There is really no serious debate or dispute as to whether Christ lived. And were it not for the blinding uh, doubt of mankind, there would be no question as to whether he rose from the dead. I did this on Easter. I want to read this to you if it's all right. And I, I won't be able to really preach it the way I did around Easter time. We're coming up on Easter again. But I want to give you these three proofs of the resurrection. These are things that have nothing to do with the testimony of Scripture necessarily, but three proofs of the resurrection. The first is the empty tomb. 
there is no question that there is an empty tomb. Uh, you can go there today and stand within that tomb. The resurrection would not have been preached in Jerusalem if the tomb had not been empty. Think about it. They didn't have an empty tomb to point to. How could they have preached a resurrection? The Jews and Romans acknowledged the tomb was empty. Uh, both of them, you remember when they go to Pilate and they say, we don't know what's happened to his body, uh, what do we do? And, and they it said, well, just uh, tell the folks that uh, some of his followers have come and stolen his body away. Why did they even acknowledge that? It wasn't helpful for either of them. It made them look like a fool to admit it, but they did. That tells you the tomb was empty. The source for Mark's gospel, listen carefully to this, was less than seven years removed from the crucifixion. The high priest is mentioned seven times in the book of Mark, but never by name. Now, why would that be? Caiaphas served as high priest from about 18 A.D. to no later than 37 A.D. Evidently, the high priest, during the recording of Mark's source, was still Caiaphas, and the source felt no need to identify him. In other words, if we were to say the president, you would know I mean Donald Trump. If I was wanting to talk about Barack Obama, I would say President Obama, because I would want you to know which president I was talking about. So the fact that Mark never calls him by name is a good indication that Caiaphas was still the high priest, so it couldn't have been very far removed. The story of the burial and the empty tomb are recorded by the same person. The story of the burial included reference to Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was too famous of a man to be fraudulently invoked without fear of exposure. In other words, they brought up Joseph's name. If he hadn't been a, a witness to it, he would have no doubt spoken out. So therefore, the burial, the truth of the burial, points to the empty tomb. The testimony of women was used. And in this time in history, women's testimony would have been considered less credible than men's. If they were perpetrating a legend, in other words, or a lie, they would have used the disciples as their primary sources. But Scripture does not. The tomb of Christ didn't become a shrine, suggesting that Christ's bones were not there. If the tomb is empty, then here's the question, why? Who would steal Christ's body? The Romans and look foolish, the Jews and embolden the followers of Christ, the disciples and be beaten and martyred for a lie? You see, there's no logical answer for the empty tomb except that Christ rose. The second is eyewitness testimony. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-7, uh, Paul says himself that uh, he knew several people that had been alive and had seen the risen Christ. Now, there's only three explanations. If you have multiple people bearing witness and testimony to something, you can only have basically three explanations. One is that they all lied. That's a possibility. They all got together and said, we need to lie. But here's the problem. Ten of the disciples died a martyr's death. Men may die for a lie that they believe to be true, but would they die for something they know to be a lie? Would ten of them? How could that possibly hold together? Would ten men be able to maintain a unified narrative for decades under threat of persecution and death? I mean, that's illogical. Second explanation is they were hallucinating. It was a mass hallucination. It would be possible for ten people to have identical hallucinations, or impossible for them to have identical hallucinations. What if I'd walked in and said, wasn't that an interesting dream I had last night? And didn't give you any information. You might have a dream and I might have a dream, but it's impossible that we'd have the same dream. It's even more impossible that ten people would have the same dream. This also does not explain the physical components of their testimony. They describe eating and drinking and touching. And what about Paul's experience on the Damascus Road? Was this persecutor so desirous? And that's the idea behind mass hallucinations, that you just sort of psych yourself up to see something until you see it. Was... Saul of Tarsus, this persecutor, so desirous to witness the resurrection that he tricked himself into a hallucination. The hallucination theory doesn't account for the empty tomb, which is another problem with it. 
There is a third explanation as to how all these men gave the same testimony. And that's that Christ arose. That He arose. Uh, there's a third proof of the resurrection. And that's the existence of the church. Skeptics claim the resurrection is a myth born out of legend and based upon ancient ideas. They claim three sources for the, quote, myth of the resurrection. One is they claim Christian influence. That Christians just sort of concocted the resurrection. Uh, the problem with this... Uh, I'll just read it the way it's written. Since the belief in the resurrection was itself the foundation for Christianity, it cannot be explained as the later product of Christianity. It's a chicken and egg thing, right? Uh, for, uh, as an example of this, we saw that if the disciples made it up, then they were frauds and liars. Alternatives have shown to be false. We've also shown the unlikeliness uh, that they would have hallucinated this belief themselves. So in other words, the fact the church exists and it's built on the resurrection, tells you that the church couldn't have concocted the resurrection uh, unless a bunch of people got together and said, hey, let's just start a religion. And let's uh, be sure and be beaten and martyred and die for it as well. Uh, the second is pagan influence. And you'll hear this a lot. Atheists will bring this up. They'll say, well, you know, it's, it's a, an old legend, uh, Egyptian legend from Horus and, and stuff like that. Uh, first off, it's been shown that these mystery religions of ancient Egypt and Babylon had no major influence in Palestine in the first century. Second, most of the sources which contain parallels originated after Christianity was established, not before. Third, most of the similarities are often misguided in their application, a result of sloppy terminology on the part of those who explain them. For example, one critic tried to argue that a ceremony of killing a bull and letting blood drip all over the participants was parallel to Holy Communion which is not so. There's nothing similar to them. Uh, fourth, the early disciples were Jews, and it would have been unthinkable for a Jew to borrow them from another religion. The third is Jewish influences. They say that the resurrection is a reincarnation of Jewish folklore. Jewish influences cannot explain the belief in the resurrection either. First century Judaism had no concept of a single individual rising from the dead in the middle of history. Their concept was of a general resurrection or no resurrection of all, at all. For instance, the Pharisees believed in a general resurrection Sadducees didn't believe in any resurrection at all. So the idea of one individual rising in the middle of history was foreign to them. Now I say all that simply to say this. None of that really says, well, the Bible says so, so we believe it. Every one of those simply appeals to logic. It's only logical that an empty tomb would bear witness to a risen Savior. It's only logical uh, that the eyewitness testimony that's given would be valid and viable. Uh, it's only uh, logical that the church in its existence could only have happened through the resurrection. The fact is, the resurrection is not in dispute to clear-thinking people uh, that are not biased by their unbelief or unwillingness to believe in anything beyond the tip of their nose. Uh, the, the resurrection is a fact of sacred history. Number two, it is a fact of sound theology. I don't have time to go through all this, but Paul spends a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15 showing that Christianity just simply does not work without a risen Savior. Uh, it cannot function. It cannot work. And, and I'll just ask you this simple question. Who would save you? If Christ is not risen, who would save you? Who would you ask to save you? If the idea behind Christianity is that we cannot save ourselves, we must be saved by another. And the law is proven exhaustively to, to show that to be true, that the, the message of the law was that the whole world would become guilty before God, that every mouth would be stopped, that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And without a risen Savior, who's going to save you? And then third, the resurrection is a fact of spiritual victory. And that's really what Paul is getting at here, is that the truth of the resurrection 
it, it imparts some realities to us. Uh, Romans 6 and 7 and 8, really Romans 5, 6, 7 and 8, are occupied with this foundational truth. That we can't live like the old man if Christ is risen from the dead. The whole concept of Christianity, that we died with Him on the cross, and that we were buried with Him in the tomb, can only logically end by saying we were raised with Him to walk in a new way. So he says, if ye then be risen with Christ, and you know that you are, then he says, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So there is a reality about Christ's resurrection. Number two, there is the reality of Christ's rapture. Now, I don't mean the rapture of the church, but I mean Christ's rapture. That he is no longer here on earth, but that he is seated on the right hand of God. That's what Paul says there. In other words, the fact that uh, our Savior, our Lord, our Master is no longer walking on this earth amongst us, but that He has transcended to the presence of God the Father, and that He is seated at the right hand of God and He's making intercession for us as His priest, that should, that, or as our priest, that should produce some things in our life. And He gives three things. One, He points to what we are to seek. He says we're to seek those things which are above. And what does that mean? Well, it means three things. Number one, heavenly principles. That our lives should be guided and governed and molded and informed and shaped, not by earthly temporal principles. For instance, let me give you an earthly temporal principle, right? Look out for number one. That's a truism of the world. And in fact, if you're probably going to get anywhere in life, you will at one point or another have to exercise that truth. If you're going to just do it through your own strength, look out for number one. That's not what Christ said. Christ said, hey, if a person wants to uh, be Lord of all, he's got to be servant of all. He said that whoever's first shall be last and last shall be first. In other words, we are to seek after heavenly principles. And that ought to guide our life, not earthly principles. Number two, we ought to seek after heavenly power. Heavenly power. In other words, we ought to try to lay up for ourselves... Uh, not influence and power and prominence on this earth, but rather we ought to seek to be mighty with God. We ought to seek through prayer and through surrender to have God favor and bless our life and use us for His glory. We ought to seek, number three, heavenly purpose. Uh, This world, the greatest purpose it can give to a person is merely to wind up this life in better shape than they began it. That's basically, we could sum up the ambition of humanity in that way. The loftiest aspiration of mankind is to end with a bigger bank account, a bigger house, a bigger family, a bigger circle of friends, to merely end this life in a better condition and then die just like anyone else does, go to the grave just like anyone else does. This is why Solomon says that the wise man dies like the fool, the rich man dies like the poor. Because at the end of the day, this world's ambitions, all of them end in a grave. But not so for you and I as believers. Because we stand on the other side of the grave with the risen Lord. And because of that, our purpose ought to be eternal, not temporal. I didn't put this in my notes, but you could probably also say heavenly prosperity. Lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. Not seeking merely to build a mountain of wealth to die on top of or underneath of, but rather to lay up treasures in heaven. So we're to seek those things which are above. Then he says we are to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Our affections are deeply associated with our aspirations. In other words, the things that we love and live for ought to be eternal things, not temporal things. 
It's too easy. And I think most of the people that have a few miles behind them on the road would probably amen this, that it's too easy to put your tent stakes too deep in this world and to get too hooked into the car you drive and the house you live in and the property you own and the, the zeros in your bank account. As believers, we ought to recognize that the vast majority of our living is going to be done after the grave, not before it. This is just a short span, a short window. This life is a vapor, right? It's just a vapor that appeareth for a moment, then vanisheth away. <laughs> the majority of the living we're going to do is on the other side of eternity. And so that ought to be what we love and what we set our affection on. And then he points to what we are to see. He says this, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. <laughs> this is not the first time that Paul has introduced this theme. But it is going to be the beginning of a larger discourse that we're going to move through tonight. And that is the idea that positionally we are dead, the old man is, and the new man is alive in Christ. He's going to spend the next few verses, the next ten or so verses, encouraging us and charging us to this, that we ought to live like it. We ought to live like it. We ought to see ourselves not as being alive in this world, but being dead in this world, and as being not dead concerning eternal things, but alive concerning eternal things. So he gives the reality of Christ's rapture. And then third, he gives the reality of Christ's return. Verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now, the Bible teaches plainly that the second coming of Christ happens in two parts. There is the secret appearing, if we want to, uh, maybe that, I guess that's an oxymoron. There is the secret return. When he raptures the church out, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. We shall not sleep. Uh, the trump of God will sound, and we'll be caught up together with him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The Bible also describes in many places, the most prominent of which and the most vivid of which is Revelation 19, that Christ is going to then return to this earth with us, and we will be with him when he returns. Uh, the first time that he returns, he is returning to take us to heaven with him. The second time that he comes, he's coming to bring heaven back down to earth with him. That is what Paul is pointing to. And he describes these events as being synonymous sometimes, or, or we might say seamless, if not synonymous, being seamless. Now, I think the reason is because as a believer, uh, that seven-year interval between those two events has no importance to us. We're not going to be here. We're not appointed under wrath, Paul says in Second Thessalonians. And so he'll speak of both of these things as being seamless because uh, when one happens, then for our practical concerns and, and uh, involvement, the other is, is following closely behind it. Uh, so when he talks about appearing, the word appearing means to make visible, to uncover, to lay open, to lay bare. He is refer referring to the glorious appearing of Christ when he comes back at the end of the tribulation period. And two things ought to result from that. One, he points to the fact that we are sharing in his life right now. When Christ, who is, not who will be, not who was, but who is our life, shall appear. We are right now sharing in the blessings of Christ's first coming. We are right now enjoying and living in the life that God has intended for us. Now, we may not be living to the fullest of that life, but we right now are beneficiaries of that resurrection life. And then, he says, we're going to be sharing in his lordship then, at that point. 
He says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, and he will appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. We share in his grace now, and we're going to share in his glory then, on that day. John described this in 1 John chapter number 3. He said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. We share in his life right now. We're not waiting to get eternal life. We've got eternal life. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. But John isn't wearing blinders. He says, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like it. We shall see him as he is. We are going to be, the, the image of Christ is going to be fulfilled and fleshed out and manifest in us. And we will share in his glory. So these three important principles, the reality of Christ's resurrection, that he is risen indeed. The reality of Christ's rapture, that he has gone to heaven, that he's no longer with us, uh, bodily speaking. And the reality of Christ's return, that this same Jesus, which you have seen ascend up into heaven, shall in like manner come again. Uh, we're going to see him again. He's given us these three realities. Now here's the important thing. And he enters an important discourse, an important discussion, starting at verse 5. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? Well, there's two basic important truths. And the overall, you'll see in your notes at the top of them, it says the truth about the Christian part one. Because he's going to talk about the effect that should have in our personal life. And that's what we're going to talk about for the remainder of our time tonight. And then next week we'll talk about its effect on our church life. So in other words, <laughs> what should it move us to do and to be in our personal walk with Christ? And then how will it inform and how will it mold and shape our interaction with other believers? So, in verses 5 through 14, he points to our personal life. What are the steps uh, to what is to be expected? We know the statement of what is to be expected. We're to live in this new life. But how do we do it? What are the steps to get to that point? And he introduces us into two, uh, to, to two men in this passage. He introduces us to two men. One he calls the old man. The other he calls the new man. And he presents this important dichotomy in the life of the believer that every single saved person has two people living within them. I preached on this some time ago, but when I come to Colossians chapter 3 in these verses, I can't help but think about Rebecca in the Old Testament. Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. And, of course, she was pregnant with twin sons, Jacob and Esau. The Bible says that she felt them struggling within her. And she asked this question to God. She knows that God has ordained these children to be born. She knows that through these children the Messiah is going to come. She knows that she's, in other words, she's supposed to be with child at that time in her life. She knows that she's doing the will of God. And she asked this question when she feels the children struggling within her. She says, if it be so, why am I thus? If it be so, why am I thus? In other words, if this is what God's plan is, why is there this struggle inside? And I think that sort of sums up the question that Paul answers here. Because every one of us as believers, we recognize that there is a daily struggle within us between the old man and the new man. And the reason is because they're of two different natures, the same way that Jacob and Esau were. They were of two different destinies, the same way that Jacob and Esau were. If it be so, why am I thus? Well, Paul explains it to us. First, he introduced us to this old man, verses 5 through 9. We'll read verses 5 through 7. He says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And he describes them, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, 
evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, he says, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. So, and again, I want to remind you that there is a positional truth here and a practical truth. So, in other words, there is our, our standing with God, and then is our, there is our status in life of, of how we are living, our condition. These could be summed up in two ways. One, he lists a critical fact. This isn't about your feeling. This is a fact. Ye are dead. That's what he says in verse number three. Ye are dead. Not do you feel dead. Not are you sometimes dead. This is not God asking your opinion about being dead. This is God saying that in his eyes, the old man is dead. But in order for that to have any impact in our life, there is a critical fact, but there has to be a corresponding act. Paul uses a good southern word in Romans chapter 6. He says, reckon yourselves to be dead. Reckon yourselves to be dead, indeed, unto sin. Here, he uses the word mortify. Mortify. What that means literally is to make dead. It comes from the word necros. And when we talk about, you know, necropathy and things like that, it means something dying or being made in a state of death. So he says to the church at Colossae, he says, God says you're dead. Now live like it. Act like it. Treat your old man in that way. He describes the old man's ruin, uh, the old man's rotten condition, if we could say it that way. In verses 5 through 7, the first is he describes the reality of it. He says, mortify therefore your members. Uh, God does not convert or condone the flesh. God does not save a man's flesh. Instead, he mortifies it. He crucifies the flesh. Much of modern day religion is based on trying to convert or trying to condone the flesh. It's men just trying to turn over a new leaf and do better. Men just trying to try harder, trying to make it somehow, trying to get themselves in a better state of mind. God says that's the wrong way of thinking. You need to recognize that your flesh is never going to be anything but flesh. It's always going to want to do wrong. It's always going to desire to do the wrong thing. He says, listen, the condition of your flesh is that it's dead and you need to just go ahead and come to terms with that. If you entertain any delusions of thinking that somehow your flesh is better than mine, you might as well just forget about it. It's, it's not better than mine. Mine's not better than yours. And they ain't going to get any better. You're never going to grow out of the temptation to do wrong and to sin. Uh, he describes the, uh, and he gives several names. He says, your members which are upon the earth, and this is what they are. He describes fornication. We know what that is. That's sexual sin. He says uncleanness. Uh, we might describe that as being sort of impurity. He describes inordinate affection. That means lust. Evil concupiscence. That means evil desires. And then he says covetousness, which is idolatry. That's what the flesh is. The flesh just, it just reacts on impulse. Any of y'all ever eat frog legs? I know somebody in this room is eating frog legs. You take them frog legs and put them in the pan, and what do they do? They start jumping. And there ain't no brain telling them to do it. It's just nerve endings in there. That's just how it responds. That's how the flesh is. Why do you don't have to teach a child how to do wrong? They just know. They just know how. 
It's in their flesh. Your flesh is that way. What are the roots of this ruin? Why are we like this? Well, there's a few things that are given here. One, the attitude of man is part of the reason that the flesh cannot be renovated. Part of the reason that the flesh cannot be made new. Because of uh, man's attitude, I'm trying to spit it out here. Man's attitude towards God, the commentator describes it this way, is that of racial disobedience. What does he call us? He calls us children of disobedience. The human nature in and of itself is intrinsically wrong and sinful. I know that the motivational speakers like to tell you that at your very core is a seed of good and you just need to nurture it and grow it. But that's anti-Bible. The Bible says that, uh, that the flesh, in the flesh dwelleth no good thing. We get this flesh from Adam. Adam chose to do wrong. And he became the federal head and father of the depraved, fallen, uh, rotten human race. The Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And later on, the Bible says that in Adam all die. All die. We get that sin nature from Adam. Uh, the attitude of man. The attitude of God is that of righteous displeasure. And this is why the flesh can never be renovated. Because the Bible says, For, this, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. You know why? Because God's, uh, the, the word that's used there has the idea of hot anger, burning, wrathful displeasure. You ever said this before, man, that just makes my blood boil? The actions and behavior of the flesh just makes God's blood boil. His wrath abides on the flesh and the actions and behavior of the flesh. What's the attitude of the believer supposed to be? And this is why, again, the flesh cannot be renovated. It's supposed to be that of real discernment. Verse 7, In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in it. In other words, what Paul's saying is this, Don't you realize, man, that's part of that old life that was on the other side of the spiritual grave. That's part of that old life that you used to love, that you used to be comfortable in. But don't you realize, and hadn't the Holy Ghost borne witness to you, that you can't ever go back to that life? Now, don't get me wrong, people can live in sin. They can live for decades in, in abject, blatant, uh, obstinate disobedience to God. But once you get born again, you're never going to be happy in sin the way you used to be. It'll forever bother you. You'll never be happy in it again. Uh, you won't, you won't, it won't never be a mud bath to you anymore. It's going to be a pigsty now. It's never going to be something you're going to enjoy. So the attitude of the believer should be to recognize that that's past tense. You sometime walked in it. At one time that was good enough, but no longer. You've been saved. You've been changed. So he describes the old man's ruin. And then he, I think it's interesting, he describes the old man's rags. Look what it says in verse number 8. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Another word for that word deeds is the word habit. The word habit. These are the habits of the old man. This is how he lives. This is how he conducts himself. Uh, it's interesting because that word habit, it carries two connotations. There's a habit in the sense of a, of a learned behavior that has become part of our routine and has become inseparable from our conduct and way of life. But you know the term habit also is associated with clothing. For instance, a nun's habit or a riding habit. It's almost like what Paul's saying is this, and, and he uses this language when he says, put off the old man. That literally means to take it off like clothing, like an old robe, to strip it away. 
And he's saying, don't you realize that those old rags that the old man was, that you walked in, they're not sufficient anymore. He describes basically three things that are those old rags. One is his evil whims. Verse number eight, he says this, put off anger, wrath, and malice. And I don't have time to dwell on these, but anger denotes the feeling of ill will. It's sort of the generic term of ill will. It is the day in and day out existence in the state of ill will. You ever met people just mad all the time? Christians ought not to be that way. Hey, listen, there's a time to be angry. The Bible says to be angry and sin not. And it's funny because we always emphasize the last part of that verse. Be angry and sin not. And we say, well, we ought not sin. But has it ever dawned on you that's also a command? There are some things we're commanded to be angry at. Jude says we ought to hate the garment, even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now, I've said this before. I, in fact, I feel like I said it not too long ago, although days, months, and years seem to run together anymore. But a farmer, he hates weeds because he loves his crop. The shepherd hates wolves because he loves his sheep, Right? Uh, listen, the, the soldier, he hates the enemy because he loves his family. The fact is, if you love some things, it's going to make you hate some other things. There is a place for anger. But with that said, we ought not be one of those people who just lives in perpetual anger. And I've met people like that. They just live in a perpetual state of, of, of a bad attitude, you know, of anger with people. So he describes anger. The second is wrath. And this word has the idea of outbursts. This is a flash of ill will. Losing your temper. Right? Anybody in here drive? All right, then you know what I'm talking about. Man, you can be going down the road, worshiping, singing, listening to gospel music, praying. I'm talking about talking to God, meeting. I mean, you're in the throne room. And somebody cuts you off, and all of a sudden, man, that flesh just stands up and stands on that horn and tells them some things that their worst enemy wouldn't say to them. We all have it in us. I don't care who you are. We all have it in us. But that's the type of stuff we need to put off. And we're going to tell, we're going to describe how here in a moment. But then he describes the fostering of ill will. Malice. Not molasses. Malice. Malice has the idea of bearing grudges. Bearing grudges. We all in life have things that are hard to shake. We all have hurts that take time to heal. But as a believer, we ought to recognize that if we're dead, you can't hurt a dead man's feelings. You can't do it. We always talk about, well, don't speak ill of the dead. Why? They don't hear. They don't care. And the reality is, a dead man, you can't hurt a dead man's feelings. Every grudge ends with the grave, sooner or later. If it don't end before, it'll end at the grave. You can't carry it beyond there. So if we're dead, then we ought to recognize that that old way of living, that's done with. Then describes his evil words. He says this, not only anger, wrath, and malice, but he says blasphemy. That's speaking to defame someone. That's slandering someone. Filthy communication out of your mouth. That's smut. That, that's uh, bad talking. That's filthiness. That's bad jokes and dirty stories and things. And then he says, well, not lie one to another. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Hey, listen. The tongue is a world of iniquity, and it's set on fire of hell. If you want to find out how much control your flesh has over you, you just do a little uh, barometer test over how well you can control your tongue. James said, and we preached a lot about it in the last follows course, that if a man can bridle his tongue, he can bridle his whole body. The tongue is the last line of, of rebellion. <coughs> the tongue is the last insurrectionist against the control of the new man over a person's being. So he describes the old man's evil words. And then he describes his evil ways. 
verse number 9, the very end of it, he says, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. In other words, he sums it up by saying this. When you died, you died to those things. So you ought to put those things off and recognize, recognize at least this, that when they get victory over you, when the old man gets the upper hand, that that's not how God intends it. You know what I think we're guilty of sometimes? I think we're guilty of doing wrong and never noticing it. And it's not that the Holy Ghost don't point it out to us, but we have a willful blindness. Uh, old Vance Havner used to talk about modern day Christianity, and he said one of the things that he feared that we would become guilty of is being traffickers in unfelt truth. In other words, hearing the truth, but just learning to turn away from it. And the fact is, we all do wrong. We all sin. We all got this flesh in us. We all feel that struggle. It shouldn't scare you that you feel that struggle. What should scare you is when you don't anymore. If it be thus, why am I so? And the answer was, it is so because you are thus, Rebecca. It's so because you have those two boys within you. And in the providential plan of God, they're contrary in nature. The, the spirit lusteth against the flesh, the contrary one to another. shouldn't scare you that it's a struggle to do right. It should scare you when it's not a struggle when you do wrong, when you just don't, it don't bother you anymore. We ought to be fighting to put off the old man. Well, God don't want us running around naked. Verse number 10, he says, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. You know, somebody asked me this the other day. I can't remember who it was, and I can't really remember the full context of the question. But it had to do with, with the new man, and it had to do with our spirit and our soul. And they were asking the question about our, you know, man is a triune being, just like God is. Uh, man has a body, a soul, and a spirit. And uh, God is a triune God. The Father is the soul of the Godhead. Christ is the body of the Godhead. The Spirit is the spirit of the Godhead. They were asking me a question about the Spirit, what function the Spirit has uh, in a lost person's life and a saved person's life. In a lost person's life, the Spirit has no function because they are spiritually dead. They cannot interact with God in a spiritual way. Now, you say, well, how does anybody ever get saved? Well, because we are quickened by the Word of God. It is, uh, it's, it, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It quickens us. It makes us alive. So, in other words, a lost person hears the Word of God, and if they will respond with the intellect that they have, with the logic they have, with the soul, the consciousness that they have, then the Word of God has the ability to awaken the spiritual man within them. And they respond then in obedience if they accept the gospel message, they accept the truth of God, they submit their will to God, then they are made alive. They are you who were dead in trespasses of sin and sins have been quickened together with him. They are then made alive. So the spiritual man is the new man. And that is the part of us that responds to God. That's the part of us that the Holy Spirit convicts and pricks. That's the part of us that communes with the Lord. That's the part of us that worships God. That's the new man. Paul says you have a question, or you have a decision, rather, to make in your life now. You can either indulge that old man, the old way of living, the flesh, the impulse, the thing that drives us to do wrong, and in doing so, you will oppress the new man. Or you can indulge the new man. You can be renewed. The Bible talks about that, that the inner man is renewed day by day. That the, the old man, he, the outer man perishes, but the new man is, or the inner man is renewed day by day. You can indulge and renew that new man day by day, 
and in doing so it oppresses the old man. Paul says, put off the old man, put on the new man. He describes the new man's righteousness in verses 10 and 11. He says, put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. He says that this new man is a creation of God. We have been created. Uh, We put on the new man. And I think this is interesting the way this language is, because it describes both the positional and the practical. He says, you have put on the new man. That's past tense. That happened when we got born again, right? Which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. You have put him on, and he is renewed after the knowledge of him that created him. You know what it reminds me of? We're getting ready to do our garden. And uh, I guess we will if we ever get time to. And we'll put those plants out. And we have planted them. That is a statement of fact. We haven't now, but we will have. Imagine that we're talking in two weeks, all right? We have planted them. They are planted, but they have to be tended to. And the growth of them and the production of them is going to be dependent on the rains that fall from heaven, on the fertilizer that's placed around them, on the tilling that's done, on the weeds being pulled away. It is positionally true that they have been planted, but for them to bear fruit, they have to be tended. And I think that is sort of similar in some ways to what God is saying. Positionally, we have put on the new man. That happened when we got saved. But he is renewed. How? In knowledge, after the image of him that created him. In other words, what is God's ultimate positional goal for you and I? John told us, now we're the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Right? That's what God's goal is, to make us like Christ. So how is the new man, the, the new man renewed day by day? How is the inner man renewed and the new man strengthened day by day? Well, we look at our life. We look at it according to Scripture. We look at it according to the testimony of Christ. And we say, do I look like that? Do I look like Jesus Christ? And when we find areas that we don't, we correct them in our life in obedience to the Spirit of God and in application of Scripture. We obey the Scriptures and we allow ourselves to become more like Christ. What is the character of the new man? In Christ, uh, God has abolished three or four things, excuse me. We see, and I'm just going to run through these, that all differences of country have been abolished. He says there's neither Greek nor Jew. To a Jew, there were two types of people walking the earth. Jews and Goyim, Gentiles. In other words, them and everybody else. Paul says that's been done away with. It's not about Jews. It's not about Greeks. It's not about what country you're a part of. It's about Christ now. All differences of creed have been done away with. He says circumcision or uncircumcision. In the Old Testament, there were only two types of people. Uh, Circumcised people that were a part of the covenant of Abraham and uncircumcised people that were outside of that covenant. Now, that's not to say that a person couldn't know God apart from that. I'm not going to get into all the particulars of, of, you know, well, there's some Gentile living in the desert somewhere. But in the scope of Judaism, there were only those that were in the camp and those that were outside of the camp. And if a Gentile wanted to know the God of Israel, they had to convert to Judaism to know him. They had to be circumcised. And what Paul's saying is all that's been done away with. It's not about what creed you have. It's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not about religious affiliation anymore. It's about Christ, who you know in Christ. Now, by the way, that's not to say that knowing Christ is not going to produce religious distinctives. But it is to say that those religious distinctives in and of themselves are not anything that curry favor with God. 
Uh, in other words, God is not impressed that you're a Baptist. Now, I think if you want to impress God, you'll be a Baptist. Amen. But God is not impressed that you're a Baptist. You know, God is not impressed that you have uh, partaken in, in communion or been baptized. It's not about that. It's about Jesus Christ. So all differences of creed, all differences of culture have been abolished. He says barbarian or Scythian. Both of these were derogatory terms that were used by Greeks for other people. Uh, again, in the Greek mind, there were sort of two people in the world. There were Greeks, and then everybody else was a barbarian. And they viewed themselves as being part of the uh, intellectual, enlightened would be the word that they would use, the enlightened class of people in the world. And everybody else was just ignorant. Everybody else were savages. And the term Scythian was a term that was used for low-brow Greek people. So, in other words, people that were part of the Greeks, they weren't really part of the Greeks. And Paul says all that's been done away with now. All the cultural distinctions are not of any import anymore. And he says all differences of class have been done away with. Neither bond nor free. Didn't matter. When they sat around the Lord's table, you might have somebody that was a doctor sitting beside somebody that dug ditches. You might have a slave sitting beside a senator. None of that mattered anymore. All that mattered is summed up in that last phrase in verse number 11. Christ is all and in all. In other words, all that matters is if you have Christ. And if you have Christ, then Christ is in you. He's in you. So you have the new man's righteousness described. And then, just as he talked about the old man's rags, he talks about the new man's robes. In other words, how he conducts himself. Verse number 12, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So he describes three things here. We mentioned two of them. We'll get to the third. First is goodness. He says we've received a holy character from God. We are elect. We are holy and beloved. That's how God views us. That's how God intends for us to be. Elect means to be chosen or to be choice. For instance, when you go through the grocery store, you're looking at those cuts of meat, right? And they got the mystery meat. You don't even get to know what animal it came off of. And then you go about $6 further down the shelf per pound, and there's the choice meat. And it's been certified, and you know what you're getting when you get that. You know it's good stuff because it's been authorized, verified, validated, certified. He says as believers, we are choice. Uh, we as Christians, we have been set aside for a purpose, and we're of different character and quality than those around us. That's how God views us. That's how we ought to live. Holy and beloved. So we've received a holy character, and as a result, we ought to reveal a holy character. And he describes several things. He says, we're to put on what? Bowels of mercies. Now, the term bowels is used very many times in your scripture, and it means bowels. <laughs> but it carries with it the idea of deep feeling, right? Deep feeling. If you, if you want to know, if you want to experience what I mean, stop by Crystal's on your way home, all right? And get their junkyard fries with the jalapenos and the bacon and the ranch. And uh, about 2.30 a.m., you won't have any question what part of your body is your bowels, okay? Uh, you will have a first-hand experience. Can you believe this is going to go on the Internet? And uh, <laughs> that's all right. If they, they'll just know who we are. But it has the idea of deep feeling, right? And he's saying this is what ought to be on the inside of every believer. Mercy. Mercy. Not always looking to uh, get, get back at people, but to have mercy. Kindness. Humbleness of mind. 
humbleness of mind. Not trying to elevate ourselves, but trying to take the lower place. Meekness. Meekness is strength. Typically, I would say this, the secular definition of meekness is strength under control. But I would add a little qualifier to it when we're talking about Christians. Meekness is strength under spiritual control. Strength with the guidance and direction of the Spirit of God exercising it. And long-suffering, patience with one another. He describes it in verse number 13 in more vivid terms. The new man's robes are goodness, but number two, they are graciousness. Forbearing one another. You know what that means? Putting up with each other. Putting up with, having grace towards each other. I tell you, man, I've never seen a day. I say this as a pastor. and Maybe it's just where I'm at in ministry. But I've never seen a day, and thankfully I don't believe our church is like this, but I've never seen a day when Christians are less apt to give grace to one another as they are today. I mean, man, we are so quick to criticize. We are so quick to pick apart. We are so quick to find the negative. We are so quick to find a problem with somebody. That's not grace, man. Hey, listen, if God wanted to send us to hell, He had plenty of ways and reasons to do it. But He chose the one way that He could get us to heaven. That's grace. Grace. So, graciousness, forbearing one another. And what? And forgiving one another. That's grace, right? That's how we were forgiven by the grace of God. We weren't forgiven out of the stores of our promises. We were forgiven out of the stores of His grace, out of His love, out of His compassion. Uh, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any. How do we do that, by the way? I like this. One, the commentator said this. I thought this was good. Grace is the grave of our pride and contention. You want to know one of the greatest steps to mortifying self is giving grace to other people. If you have a quarrel against any, just go ahead and forgive them. Say, preacher, they didn't ask for forgiveness. Well, that's not what God said. You say, preacher, they don't deserve forgiveness. Well, that's not what God said here. Say, preacher, they're going to hurt me again. Well, that's not what God said here. You know how I know that? Because it says, even as Christ forgave you. He forgave you knowing you didn't deserve it. He, he died for you before you even asked for forgiveness. I don't believe He forgives you without you asking Him for forgiveness, but He died for you. He made forgiveness available to you before you ever asked for forgiveness. And He forgave you knowing you'd hurt Him again. Man, what a Savior we have. He says, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And then there's a third thing, and that's God-likeness. We might use the term godliness. God-likeness. He says, and above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Charity could be defined this way, sacrificial love in action, in action. Love that doesn't look to exalt or entrench self, but love that seeks to elevate somebody else. Love that seeks to make their life and their existence better, even at the expense of self. And not just in theory, but in action. And that charity, that willingness to put self aside, you know what he says? That's the bond of perfectness. Perfectness has the idea of maturity and completeness. In other words, you know when you've really arrived? When you can put off the old man, put on the new man, and love somebody that don't deserve your love. Forgive somebody that don't deserve your forgiveness. Treat them well when they've treated you bad. That's, that's when you know you've arrived. That's when you're getting somewhere. That's what God is trying to get us to.